Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 23. This is part 1. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. Well Pete, chapter 23, we're last chapter and it's been you know, a, a long journey but we've still got lots to go because this chapter is pretty long in itself. Although I must say the uh, massive slabs from Dr Buck... <laughs> take up quite a few pages. <laughs> I mean, as far as I can remember, this is the first time Dr. Buck has been introduced. So right at the end, at this very last chapter, in comes Dr. Buck, huge slabs of quotes, and then, without spoiling it, Uspensky hits him in the nuts with a cricket bat. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. He doesn't hold back. He, doesn't he hold certainly back. does not. <laughs> And what I think is hilarious is he has plagiarised slabs throughout the book from yeah. Dr. Buck's book because yeah, you he can has, see them actually. in earlier chapters in here. So he's he's been shameless, Spensky. He has been very yeah. shameless. And then, no, no, <laughs> no, nothing, no bother on him. He's, he's giving, yeah. he's, he's giving he's it all giving he's got. So, oh, he is. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just thought it anyway, was hilarious. Well, we will we'll get to that. So I'm going to start right at the beginning, and look, it's very timely this uh, this chapter. I think for for our modern times, even though a hundred years ago, uh, this was Spensky's point of view, and he's talking about the despair people have for the meaning of life, and in essence, he's saying that you know we we have all these explanations for the meaning of life, but there is still this sense of despair up to the point where it's too hard to even think about because once you run out of all your material reasons for being here, there's nothing really tangible unless, of course, you're looking elsewhere and most people don't. No, that's right. And he he does say, um, you know, that people, you know, think nothing or they only think about something that yields a very surface and shallow solution. So they're not looking for the meaning of life. They're just looking for, why is this happening today? Or what does that mean on the surface? And he's dead right. And that's why we, um, by the way, 100 years later, I think we're even worse now than we were then. I really do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I think, I think you're right because back then people didn't have all this, you know, computers and their, their phones and things to distract them. You know, their, their daily out and out and about was interacting with others and nature and whatever. Uh, these days, we're just so distracted by things that are going to supposed to make us happy, and then you know that the, the novelty wears off, and then it's the next thing that's going to make us happy. But there's never there anything really tangible while you're looking at that material stuff, which is is in, in abundance. Uh, and I'll quote something that Spensky says: you know that yet at the same time, men are not in the least aware of what really created in them a sense of insolubility and despair. Whence comes this feeling that it is better not to think about these things, so that, that if they don't even realise, well, they don't even want to think about why they've got this undercurrent. I don't honestly agree with Spensky there because I think you'll find that just because he 
has found this despair doesn't mean that the mass majority of people most people don't even give a flying fuck about why they're here and the meaning of life i'm here to tell you that in his day and in this day um and especially in this day nobody gives a fuck people are not striving they don't feel despair about the meaning of life they just don't they just want to know what the fuck is on x factor and who's going to win dancing on ice or whatever the other bloody bullshit crappy programs or in this country we have something called i'm a celebrity get me out of here where people you've never heard of are placed in the jungle and forced to eat bugs until there's only one of them left <laughs> yeah pe people love that shit and and they don't honestly give they they pay zero attention to the meaning of life they literally don't so i, I can't say that um I'm, I'm not sure that i think Spensky's talking about his own select group of friends and people he knows, rather than the the, the massive public that he, he he purports to be talking about. Because most of them are not in despair about that. A lot of them are frightened of dying, but they're not in despair about the meaning of life because they frankly don't even know that that's a potential question that they could be asking. Yeah, look, I think that's the point Spensky's making. He said that most people don't even want to think about it. So it's not even as as you just said. It's not even something in the in the forefront of their mind. It's just it's not worth. It doesn't bear thinking about because there is no answer. And and he, he does talk about the fact that it's we we start with well the meaning of life comes to when I've got the next big thing that I've bought my house or I've bought uh, the new car. Yeah, you know, like the meaning of life comes down to these the next material thing that I'm going to have will be why I'm here. Mm, yeah, well, I know, but they they don't see it as the meaning of life, and I, that's where I no. just yeah, yeah, but that's where I disagree with Spensky because people have no thought about that purpose whatsoever in the vast, and I mean the overwhelmingly vast majority of cases of humanity in the Western world. I'm pretty sure that noble or or even cunning savages are far more aware of of life and what goes on beyond it than people in the West. So what do you think his, his point to starting the chapter this way would be? Because it's obviously... I, 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 honestly, I honestly don't think it's got anything to do with his um, understanding of ordinary people in his time and especially not in ours. It's not a universal issue. But he had to start it somewhere because what he's going to do is kick in the teeth a lot of these presuppositions that that um, the educated classes of his time would have held, and and mm. he does it really well, and and his kick in the teeth is as relevant today as it was back in uh, nineteen twenty, or actually nineteen thirteen when he started writing it, and going on to nineteen twenty when he published it. And I, I think the whole point of Spensky's book is to make people think, and that's that is. First and foremost, he he does put a lot of uh, a lot of he, effort into. He does, but which people is it that he's trying to make think? Because the people who are not thinking then and now will never in a million years pick up tertium organum. The very title would put off people now, let alone then, because it's Latin. So you know, I mean, I don't know whether Uspensky. We we started this book when we very first started these podcasts. We you know. There was a lot of railing about who this, who the audience would have been for this book, who he thought it would have been. 
I'm I'm still going to swear blind, and I I would put my life on it. Well, perhaps not. I'll perhaps put yours on it. Um, <laughs> that that Spensky never in a million years thought that this was going to be a book for the masses. I'm absolutely, You're I'm right. absolutely right. convinced point. of that. So well, so, fortunately, know. we have we we have some some listeners. So let's let's read it for them. Let's, let's oh. continue with the Spensky for them. <laughs> I didn't say I was not going to. I'm just saying that I I I have this idea that oh I know I know that, yes, that what he, know. you know you know he he does have this habit of of generalizing about humanity when he would have known full well or should have done had he thought about it that. Humanity are not going to be reading this. And he's talking about a select group of people, people in his circle, people of the educated classes that he's talking about here that have this mm. despair and so on. Because ordinary people don't. I'm, I live amongst them. I'm sure a lot of people do. You know, unless you're at some a- academic institute and you are an academic, um, although even these days, I'm, I'm not sure what constitutes an academic these days, but... Um, you're not going to have these conversations. I'm telling you right now, in houses all over the UK, as I've mentioned about X Factor and I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, and you know, Dancing with the Stars, all of these reality competitive shows, these rubbishy shows, people sitting down with a tray of garbage food for their dinner, watching those TV shows, this thought has never once crossed their minds. Never, ever Ever. And even if they accidentally saw somebody in a crappy TV show mention it, it would gloss over them quicker than a stealth jet fly, flying over Iraq. You would, they, they just wouldn't notice it. Um, and so, you know, men have despaired of finding answers to fundamental questions and have so left them alone. Well, I don't think that's the reason. I don't think there's any despair in the ordinary people. I just think that the idea that there should be such a question never, ever even occurs to them, much less the idea that it's a difficult one so that they should despair and leave it alone. I'm telling you. Yeah, that, that is, yeah, I think you're right. The more, you, yeah, the more that you say this, because he does, he does further go on to talk about, well, you know, if people are thinking about, you know, what, what is all this for? Their first yeah. step would be to say, well, okay, we're here because, you know, as long as we're well fed and we're taken care of, you know, that's good enough. And, uh, I, you know, I, yeah. I like his, um, well, his point here. He goes, splendid. But after that, what? Yeah, but more, more than that, you should, you should let the audience know that what Spensky's talking about here is social theories. He's talking about all of the social theories that were prevalent at the time. Now, one of the biggest ones that would have been prevalent at his time would have been Marxism. These, sociology didn't exist a hundred years before Uspensky wrote this. (laughs) The word didn't exist. There was no concept that this was going to happen. This social theory came out of the, the 19th century and the mid to late 19th century, realistically speaking. Before that, we had philosophy, but we had nothing like this social theory and this idea of provision. And and let's face it, what does social theory do? It sets up systems to control the mass population. It absolutely does. And and Uspensky is, is, is talking about that. So when he says, what's all this for? Well, everybody will be well fed and taken care of. Yeah, great, splendid, he says. But after that, what? 
So basically, if you take a massive population and you you give them panem et circum, which is the Latin phrase, bread and circuses, they won't even ask any other question. But we should be asking the question, is what Spensky says, we should be saying, now what? We're all comfortable, we're all happy, we're all well fed, well fed you know, now what? But nobody asked that question, uh, except Uspensky, and he does it really well, as you say. Now what? Yeah, yeah, so he takes us on a little bit of a, a trip. He says, well, okay, so we're all, we're all fed and, and uh, we've got what we need, so the next step is maybe we reach a point where uh, we don't have sordid slums and difference in wealth and, and poverty and, you know, there's no wars. Um, and I like this, he goes, and... Um, and nobody throttles anybody else. Did you see that in your book? <laughs> I, yeah, I did. Uh, but I think you know you've got you've gone further because I think it's important that he he layers this. You know, says we, we say, and then what? And then he says, well, let's suppose, although it's difficult, almost impossible to imagine that materialistic culture of itself has led men to a fortunate state of existence on Earth. Then there exists an unadulterated civilization and culture. But then what? So even then, you know, people that have been well-fed, looked after, blah, 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 by whatever social system has been put in place, they say, and then what? And then people say, well, we can develop culture and civilization. Great, so let's do that. Then what? And you can keep asking this cascading question that never actually hits, but why? Why are we doing this? Why are we here? What is the purpose? Because we turn up, we live, different lengths of time for different people, but then we die. The one thing that are certain is we're born alive, we die. We're born alive, we have an experience, we die. We're born an experience, we die. Even even like um, children who are born with congenital diseases that don't survive more than a few minutes, they're born, they have the experience, they die. It's the It's a constant. And what he's saying is that maybe we should stop in this relentless materialistic pursuit and instead of calling that progress we should be asking a question well instead of and then what we should be saying why why are we doing this why are we here and you know it, it's interesting because it doesn't happen yeah and look at the and look at what he does with science look at what he does with science you know after that we get these Many resounding phrases of incredible horizons opening up before, and he puts science in italics in my version of the book. Yes. And he's basically, those italics are the kind of contempt that I use when I'm saying science. Because Uspensky <laughs> shares the same contempt that I do for science. Science as it is now, because it's not real science, it's not proper science, it's pseudoscience that's separated everything out, which he's going to come to. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't miss a bit of this. I think everything that Ospensky writes in this chapter is just on point. Yeah, you're right. You're I right. love it. I love it. And that layering is, is really good because it, it says, okay, well, okay, we're well fed. Great. Now what? Okay, well, then we can become cultured, cultured. and we can start gathering things that, that are pretty just for the sake of being pretty or, or mm. whatever. We can have all this material stuff. Okay, we've got that. So what then? Oh, and then science can jump in and go, let's communicate with the planet Mars. Let's, the, uh, yeah, you know. Let's synthesize protoplasm. Yeah, and, yes. and I love that. Yeah, you utilise 
the rotation of the earth around the sun, energy imprisoned in, in an atom, a vaccine for all diseases. <laughs> Where are we now? Yeah, ding, 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 life, life to the length of a hundred years, or even to a hundred and fifty. After that, perhaps the artificial creation of men. How how appropriate is this now? What's coming? I know. What's I know. coming? A AI implanted chips in everybody, and we have that dickhead that owns Google, Larry, whatever his name is, um, saying that by twenty thirty, AI will be doing most of humans' thinking, and the human aspect of thought will be largely irre irrelevant. This was this was written in twenty in nineteen twenty, and here we are on that threshold right now, you know. And what it's after that? Perhaps the artificial creation of men. We're talking about test tube babies. We're doing that now. We're talking about cloning. And by the way, Spensky wrote this before Huxley wrote Brave New World because this is Brave New World as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's and. And that's the frightening thing. A hundred years later, it's all there. I love this. It is possible to dig through the earth, but that would be entirely useless. <laughs> I mean, I agree with him. It was just, it's just a strange <laughs> thing to have put in. I think that's well, it's because a of Jules on Verne. as well. Yeah, I know. It's a I think it, in its own I paragraph. Think, <laughs> I think he'd been reading Jules Verne, you know, Journey to the Centre of the Earth or something, but I thought it was hilarious that it was just there. It is That, that is an entire par paragraph, isn't it? It is possible to yeah. dig through the earth, but that would be entirely useless. <laughs> <laughs> but then he, uh, he, he then moves on and he says, well, you know... Shall we dig in another direction? <laughs> <laughs> that That feeling of you know, why are we doing this doesn't come into it. We just keep, what's the next thing? But eventually, imagination fails. Like, you know, you get to a point where, well, so what? So, you, yeah, exactly right, you dig in another direction. So what? I like, I like it, you know, because now he tells you what, what what's happening in the world and what he and why he thinks it's wrong. I mean, it's like he talks about various positivistic social theories historical materialism and so forth promise nothing better and can promise nothing. So you've got to go to the psychological method of study of man and humanity. And what does he say about the psychological method? He says it gives us a satisfactory answer. Yes, he does. So what do you think he means by psychological method? Because I that term I don't think he's used before, has he? No, not really, um, that I can think of. But then we have been doing this for a year and I'm damned if I can remember every word that we've spoken and read in, in a, <laughs> over the past well, I've, year. Well, I've edited it, so I've heard every word we've spoken 20,000 times once. over. Yeah, so, yeah, so, so I, I'm, I can I'm, say I'm, I haven't remembered it. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what he says. And here we see with amazement that the psychological methods gives us an entirely satisfactory answer to those fundamental questions which seem to us quite insoluble and around about which we fruitlessly wander equipped with the defective instrument of the positivistic method. Like he, yeah. another another knife to science right there. Well, I, I don't like here is how, how he's, he's done it like a modern TV series trailer in as much as he's shown you tons, but he hasn't, get, he hasn't told you the point he's trying to make. I mean... Not yet. He, he said, yeah, but, yet. I th but he's gone a long way. If he, I like... I, I'm, I'm maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I like tell me the point and then explain it. I, I don't like this this little, but that that's that's just me. You know, he's, you know, he says it gives a, a direct 
uh, answer at least to the question of the immediate purpose of existence. And he says, for some strange reason, men do not care to accept this answer. Well, you haven't told us the question, nor have you told us the answer. So where do we go from here, Espensky? You are going to come on to it, but I think this is a miserable structure. I'm not criticising his thought. I'm criticising his writing here and the structure of his writing. Yeah, I think he's trying to build suspense. But uh... Uh, Really, yeah. I, I can see that smile on your face that the listeners can't see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, not, I'm not I'm not I'm not gonna fall for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he says um uh they require the solution of the destiny of man as they fancy him and they do not want to recognise that man is something entirely different. Oh no, he says could become entirely different. Oh well that's he's he's changed that from Oh life. really? Oh, great, mm-hmm. because he says, and they do not want to recognise that man can and must become entirely different. Ah, yeah, well, he has clarified that because mind says is something entirely different. Oh, okay. So there you go. Man must not and cannot remain such as he is now. That's, That's what mind says. Okay, let me just read this bit because if you haven't got that, then we ought to because he says, Man must not and cannot remain such as he is now. To think of the future of this man is just is just as absurd as to think of the future of a child as if it were always going to remain a child. Because you know what we've... Yeah. yeah, so you know what we're getting on to. We're going to come on to the idea of spiritual evolution. Yes, and... He's, he's sort of, I like his analogy where he says, you know, it's absurd to think that the future of a child is that they always stay a child. We can't stay. No. We don't have, we don't have that But that are, are, are you ready for the Superman? Are you ready for the Nietzsche part? Because he follows it in my book by saying the analogy is not quite complete for the reason that probably only a small part of humanity is capable of growth. But nevertheless, this comparison paints a true picture of our usual attitude towards this question. Now, here you go. We're looking at Espensky understanding that on this earth there are different types of human. There are people like him, and there are the fetid, rotten, unthinking, uncritical, unreasoning, will always remain a child, scum of the proletariat. Well. Only a few of us, only a few of us are capable of this transcendence. He's right. You have to pose the question. And most people, as we've just discussed, don't pose the question. Don't even think that there is a question to be posed. So... You know, we do we do know that there are only a few people capable of, of this. Look, he's, there's, a, there's a few paragraphs before this next bit, so I don't want to rush to it because there's so much in this. Yeah. But, uh, but he does say that um, you know, this, this concept of equality is rubbish and yeah, that's where <laughs> the problem starts. But uh, before we get to that, he does say that this minority will progress humanity. You know, and the fate of the greater part of humanity, which will prove incapable of growth, depends not upon itself, but upon the minority, which will progress. <laughs> Only inner growth and unfoldment of new forces will give a man a correct understanding of himself, his ways, his future, and give him power to organise life on earth. 
Now that is very, very interesting because it's, in essence, he's mentioned this before. This is a power. This isn't. Yeah. yeah. It's a superpower. A superpower. Susceptible only to green kryptonite. Or the Superman. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's the Ubermensch of Friedrich Nietzsche. The Ubermensch yeah. that you see in most of his works, but particularly read also Zarathustra. It's just one of those things that you, you can't get away from. That theory and that, and that, that philosophic theory is not something that if you are investigating what Ispensky's investigating in this book, it's not something that you can turn your back on. You just can't. There is this, this constant idea that people who have the flash of illumination come away from that different than they, they were before and different from the mass of people who haven't had it. Whatever they do with that difference and, uh, and that change in themselves is down to them and everybody does it differently but we are going to come on to that it's yeah. it's very very interesting that um you would you would be reluctant now to write about an a superman an ubermensch because we've had it belittled and destroyed by its association with mid-20th century fascism particularly German fascism and National Socialism. And of course, everything about National Socialism is bad, even though they did build fantastic road systems and so on, and that people were happier until the war came, for the most part were, rather like in Iraq and Libya. They were, until we've just t turned those countries into basket cases. We did at least have the decency to rebuild Germany after we'd destroyed it. Um, we haven't done that in the Middle East, and we're not going to. It's just um, catabolic, just for the sake of it. It's destructive. So you, we have got these new concepts of humanity. Uh, and, uh, you know, and why does he talk about equality like this? It's because we are in this fervent time of revolution and equality. We've had several revolutions in the um, late 18th and then throughout the 19th century. Um, uh, what country was Zuspensky from again? Just remind me. Uh, Russia. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? In the second decade of the 20th century, I wonder what was going on there. Ooh, revolution. That's right. Allegedly egalitarian revolution, and one of the social theories that backed that egalitarian revolution was Marxism. So we've got socialism, Marx, Marxist socialism, and this idea that we're all equal... Except we know that it didn't turn out that way, but Uspensky is just is not even talking about political um, systems. He's he's literally talking about some men are supermen. Yeah, it's 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 incredible that he does it. And in his next sentence, he says he kind of elaborates. He said, "At the present time, man, and that's in italics, is being too undifferentiated. The general concept, man, includes it within itself types." with entirely different futures. And that also is italics. So, it's, you know, and it says, those capable of development and those incapable, and perhaps types of quite different origin. Now, I, I, I think that's really interesting because he's basically saying we talk about man as if we're all the, the same. same. And, yeah. and he's saying, yeah, no, nah, that's not true. Oh, by the way, when, he's, when he says of different origin, let's not skim over that. 
No, because that is in italics. And and th- this this sentence is like it's it just packed with punch. Um, so he's saying basically two types of man um, with entirely different futures and that the two types come down to those that are capable of development into a higher level of consciousness, I'm, I'm presuming he yeah. means, and those incapable of it, the masses, and perhaps, and he says perhaps, types of quite different origins. So where did, where did those, dif- where are those different origins? We're talking about um, race origins. You know it, and I know it. Let's, and he, by the way, he's not trying to hide it here. He knows that his audience will know what he means. We're talking about the difference between a cultured Westerner and a cunning savage, if you want it in the most simple terms. But he will be saying that people are not the same. Chinese and, and East Asian people are not the same as people from the subcontinent of India, who are not the same as the people from the Middle East, who are not the same as people from Western Europe. And God knows what, what he makes of the mishmash of America at that point. Probably doesn't even uh, enter his mind. So why is he lumping that in to a sentence that talks about the split being about those that are capable of development and those that are incapable? Is he saying that that is down to race? He's suggesting that it might be. Remember, he only says it may be. You know, he doesn't say that it mm. is. But he's he, that's wide open. And by the way, his little goddess, his earlier goddess, um, Helena Blavatsky, certainly believed that 100%. Yeah. Well, that's that's quite disturbing, really, isn't it? I mean, Not to, not to me. I couldn't care less. I'm not disturbed by it at all. The man's, a, you know, when do we start being frightened? When, do you know this idea of freedom of speech? If it ain't free, it ain't freedom of speech. That means you should be allowed to say anything. And people should choose whether or not to listen. And if they take offence and they're really offended by it, then that's their choice. It's just words and people should be allowed to say what they want. I'm not concerned that he says it. He's allowed to say it. I'm concerned from the point of view that if it's down to race, then say that was true as you know just take for argument's sake that was true then that doesn't mean that means that you may from birth be um un- incapable of raising your level of consciousness i i disagree with Spensky in, in one small aspect here i this idea of being capable or incapable i think that everybody's capable but i think he is right that people of certain origins are more predisposed to this spiritual evolution, in part culturally. But I do have a problem for little Mr. Uspensky here, in as much as I say it's the other way around. I'm going to say that, for example, and I keep using them, your First Nation people, the First Nation people of North America, are the ones who are infinitely more capable of this development than people in Western Europe and people from that cultural background. Uspensky wouldn't be thinking that way, by the way. Bet your life no, because him. he thinks that he is. The, think, yeah, the I know, life. but I, I'm going to suggest that he, I'm going to suggest that he is right. But, but more shock to him, it is these other people that I think are far more predisposed to having the success in spiritual evolution, and some of them, and in fact, you know, even on a, even on the level of race, you know, let's just take the First Nation people of North America, the First Nation people of Australia and so on. I think that they are already leaps and bounds ahead 
of the positivistic, materialistic, science-loving science assholes of the West. Yeah, no, I agree with you. So, Bodyspensky wouldn't have seen that. But I think it's interesting that he dares point this out. And I say dares, he didn't take a risk. In his day, it would have been perfectly natural to speak like, you know, speak of this. It's like, well, people might not agree with me, but it's perfectly okay to say it. And this is this is what I've seen, and this is my experience. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And later on in this chapter, he does differentiate between the East and the West, whereas the mm. West is not spiritual and the East is. It's a, yeah. yeah, we'll get to that. So I know we is, will. Yeah. So I'm going to disagree with Spensky on that last sentence and say that we're all capable, as you say, we're all capable of it. It's just a case yeah. of those who choose to pursue and those who don't. Well, I do, I do believe that um, whether it's genetic, whether it's cultural, I do believe that people who are born into certain races, let's call them races, um, are luckier in as much as that they will be far more predisposed to um, spiritual uplift. Whether they develop and whether they evolve within their own culture is worth debating because I think that they're on a level now that is so much higher than ours. We it's almost difficult for us to work out whether they they're, they're in a on a path of development spiritually or whether they've just reached this point that to to which we can only aspire. We'll worry about whether they're evolving then. Yeah, no, that is a valid point because. Yeah, it's well. It's like anything. The situation you're born into, uh, you just start taking on board all the learnings of that until you're, you know. When grown. you when you're born into um, Australian First Nation uh, family uh, that's living the way that they've lived for tens of thousands of years, um, you don't have to learn to meditate and so on. You don't, the idea of spiritual evolution. If you could even articulate that to them, they would find risible. They would be laughing out loud because they're quite amusing people. And they would literally laugh out loud at you. What are you talking about? We we live in the dream time and we're in the dream time. We're here. We And we flow. It's fluid. We've, we're fluid within and without the dream time and here and so on. Uh, to the point where we don't even differentiate between the dream, dream time and here. You tell me... Um, what degree of uh, busting and teeth clenching work you'd have to do to, to meditate so hard as to get to that level of living? How can we even talk about spiritual progress when people are at that level living it? They don't have to learn it. You know, those, those kids are not like sent to a school where they learn how to live in the dream. They literally do it from the moment they pop out. Interesting, eh? Yeah, then maybe that is, you know, you're luckier in some cultures than others. You can still manage it, but you'd be a bit of a head start in yeah, that, well, as you say. I, I yeah. think so. And, you know, they don't set themselves an aspirational target. I, I don't know. I'm not one of these people. Anyway, let's just move on. Where do we go now? Well, then the Spensky says something uh, quite interesting. He says, in men capable of development... Many new faculties are stirring into life, uh, though not yet manifest, because for their manifestation they require a special culture, a special education. Now, uh, what on earth is he talking about? A special culture, a special education? Is he talking about the gritting the teeth and then learning how to be spiritual kind of education? I, I think we should move away from spirituality right here. 
and I think we should talk about magic. He's talking about orders of magic, and he's talking about the theosophy, theosophical education, because Blavatsky always felt that theosophy was an education. And so what he's talking about these faculties is then the ability to actually control the force of the universe, the, the, the qi in, in Chinese or the qi, whichever, or whichever you want to pronounce it. Um, you know, th this, this, every culture has this idea of this one life force, this one energy. And we're talking about harnessing that through magical processes so that we can manipulate our environment and, and we can, what can we call it? We can utilize the law of attraction as the idiotic <laughs> pricks today think exists. Law of attraction, my ass. LOA. I've seen it abbreviated to by there's a, there's a hypnotist who really thinks that she's something else and, and she thinks she's the expert at law of attraction and she'll sell you little hypnotic scripts and recordings to like boost your hit law of attraction. All that she has managed to do, of course, is I'll give her the due that if anybody spends money on this bullshit, um, she has attracted their money into her pocket. <laughs> I guess that says yes, something. Yes, I often wonder about that. You know, if you're going to, 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 to sell, this is how you make money to somebody, and then, you know, whether they make money or not doesn't matter because you have. Because <laughs> you have, that's right. You've, you've, yeah. actually, you've actually used the law of attraction to attract their money into your purse. So... You know, I, I won't name this woman, but, she, but oh, she's not alone, and it is infuriating. So the next, this is this page is jam packed. The next part, uh, Spensky says, the new, and this is in italics, the new conception of humanity disposes of the idea of equality. Well, of course it does. Yeah, well, of course it does. When you realise that you are the Superman, you have to understand by the very fact that your self realisation as a as a Superman tells you that people who are not of your Superman class are not the same as you. So you're not equal, are you? You know, it's it's not like it's a hard one, that, is it? Well, he goes on. He, he doesn't he doesn't sort of stop with that. He says, you know, this, this idea of equality, which after all does not exist, and yeah. it tries to establish the signs and facts of the differences between men because humanity will need soon to divide the progressing from the incapable of progress, and then says, the wheat from the tars, for the tars are growing too fast and choke the growth of the wheat. He's used a little bit of an agricultural analogy. I know, but that's a fair point. But the problem is, we, we look back at his time, and these social theories that he's just spent the first um, part of the, the page um, denouncing were promoting equality, and he's telling you that this was disingenuous, even on their part. And... What's a great way of showing what he means by that? Read Animal Farm, because some are more equal than others, even even within the social theories. And why? So why do they spread this idea of equality? It controls the ones that they want to control. If you tell a mass of people that we're all equal, all of us are equal, then nobody will strive to rise, and certainly nobody will articulate the idea that they are better than anybody else. While at the top, you live your life better than everybody else without articulating it. You don't need to. So long as you get to live a better life than them, 
then you don't need to say it, do you? You've, your, your object is achieved. But, you know, this concept of equality is really front and centre now in, in our society. Oh, it's worse now than ever. Worse than ever now. You know, even, even down to gender. Oh, well, we're all equal. You know, we're all this whatever. But it's not, you, you're not male or female. We're not. How about this? There's a great phrase that's gone out of fashion, and it's called equal but different. How about that one? Yeah. And that, that, that is actually a good phrase. Isn't it? We're, 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 we are equal in terms of respect for our contribution to humanity, but we are different. Equal but different. It will do. But there's something that's happened to neo-feminism and post-neo-feminism that's attracted shrill, mob-like, screaming for things that are unnatural. And how's that working out, by the way? Do we have a happy and content society because of that? Do we fuck? Well, that's the thing. And I think uh, what my personal opinion is too, this all this equality thing is just paving the way for robots taking our jobs because, you know what, there is no gender when it comes to a robot, so we're just being primed for that. Oh, that's happening. It's been happening for a while. Yeah. And by the way, by the way, we're all, while we're still equal, you don't have to turn your head very far to see those who are more equal than others in today's society right now. Yep. You know, it's just one of those things. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So that, that, well, that's where we are. Well, you look at the 1%, they have all the money telling the 99% how to live with it. <laughs> hey, hey, that's, that's the 1%. Let's talk about the minuscule, less than 1% that doesn't need money. Money is irrelevant. It doesn't exist anyway. Uh, it's fake, and they don't need it. They control the one percent, and it's you'd be surprised how few need to do that. How can a few people? How can a few people rule lots of people? Um, well, do you wear a mask? Uh, are you s social distancing? Are you staying home to save lives? Fuck off! It's as easy as that. In this country here. Um, we see that Etonian wanker bastard of a prime minister of ours, Boris Johnson, surrounded with two fuckwit advisors telling a hot 66 million people they've got to stay in. And the vast majority of that 66 million stay at home and they berate and point the finger at those that, that won't buy into it. And eventually... That is, that, that is the point, isn't it? That you just get the, the mob to control the mob. That's, that's right. Easy, it's so easy, easy to do. And it's, we're living in times where we can see that it's easy to happen. And there you go. You can just look there around you, you and see it happening. Yep. So, anyway, moving, moving on. Moving on. Well, so Spencer then goes on to say, well, okay, the key to understanding our life uh, was, was found long ago. Yes, the enigma was solved long ago. In italics. Yeah. Um, and he and and I, I think that he is actually he spent a lot of chapters showing us exactly that. Yeah. With quoting people from a bloody long time ago, saying the same things. But I think we can go even further back, and I'll keep coming back to your First Nation people and the First Nation people of North America and South America and Africa. These people have lived this. A long time ago. We're talking before there was writing, before anybody could put it down. You know, these, I always find it like interesting because 
I read a lot of this stuff, and I, well, I have done in the past. You know, these writers we've we talked about Jacob Boma and people like this, and then you know Saint John of the Cross and all of these all of these philosophical um, mystical um, theologians and so on. And I've read it, and they struggle. You see, cultures where there wasn't really any writing, your first nation, um, North America and first nation people and so on. Uh, where they didn't need a literature, for example, they just live this. You know, there's no striving. So I think, you know, for me, it's older than even those those writers. You know, we're talking about going back a few hundred years, maybe a couple of thousand years when we're talking about Greek philosophers like the writings of Hermes Trismegistus and so on. But these these people have actually lived it. It's not like they've had to strive to find the meaning of life. It's like, what are you talking about? The meaning of life, isn't it bloody obvious? <laughs> you know, and then they go on, they carry on going about their business, living in perfect harmony with all of the rest of creation and nature. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and there you go. And then they walk away, and 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 then we come in, and we're still writing books about how electrifying flash of inspiration experience and all kinds of stuff that we can't then express in words because language isn't good enough to express it and so on. It's like, oh my God. And those people, in the, in the meantime, have gone hunting a kangaroo and they've been eating their dinner and throwing boomerangs and having endless amounts of sex. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Life. <laughs> I've got to tell you, rather than sit in a candlelit room struggling to find the right words about the, the the experience of illumination i'd rather be having sex <laughs> endless amounts of it yeah well aspensky has given you the go ahead there because he said that that's one of the keys so i it think is. you're onto something absolutely here, Pete. I'm, I'm totally onto <laughs> it i'll live that life any day <laughs> all right so so what Ospensky is talking about is saying different thinkers living in different epochs are finding solutions, but they're calling it different names. He said if the world's literature uh, were to exist in books, they'd probably only just fill a shelf in the library. And if these were taken together to give us a complete picture of the human being, they only give us part, a small part of the answer. Yeah, he says, you know, there'll be no further doubts about the destiny of humanity though only its minor part. So we're talking about a minor part of the destiny of humanity. It contained in all of those books that will only fill one bookshelf. So basically, um, although he's used that phrase, it will give us no doubt, it will, there'll be no further doubts about the destiny of humanity. What he's actually saying is, um, oh, I, there may be no further doubts about a minor part of it, but there's still a lot of questions that need to be answered. However, he does say that it will be quite a, a different sort of destiny than those hard labours of digging through the globe, which positive <laughs> philosophy and historical materialism has in store and, for him. And, and socialism. I love that. And socialism. He oh, includes socialism. You've got socialism as well. Oh, ah, yeah. Interesting. I, well, because why, why, would he, why would I have that? Because by the time he was doing this, re, re, this um, sort of revision, Rewrite. I'm, 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 I'm guessing we were hitting around about the 1917 mark and something spectacular was happening in his country in 1917. And, and you know, the run up to the October Revolution, the whole of that year and the year before, there was a ferment of unrest. So socialism was bound to, was, was now going to be added into it. 
So he's he's making he's making it really clear. It ain't that, mate. It ain't that. No, it ain't that. <laughs> and and you know he he's if the, if he'd have done this revision a year later he would have even probably mentioned marxist leninism marxism leninism he probably would have and trotskyism yes. but look he's, he he then goes to say we don't understand our destiny because the two types of men are seen as commingled into yeah. one and there is no science that studies the real relation of things to the material world so all the sciences are just studying the phenomenal world there's no science that studies the real relations. If there was, he's saying that science would reject it. There isn't a, there isn't a, a neatly sectioned off part of science that would fit it in, because it would by of necessity be holistic, and that and science doesn't like that because science is all involved about separating and specialization, which which Spensky gives a great whack with a cricket bat in this section here. Oh yeah. He smacks it around the side of the head. Let's go for it. Let's go in. Let's get into it. <laughs> yeah, let's go. So we t he talks about recognised divisions or branches of science. He says it's it's rarely possible to find them all in one book, and it's even rarely possible to find books expressing these ideas <laughs> assembled together. He's dead right. By the time he was writing this, science had separated out. You were a chemist. Or a physicist, and if you were a physicist, you would be a specialized physicist, especially since this is post Einstein. Yes. Then, then there would be cosmology, which sort of is physics, but isn't. And <laughs> you know, it's it's so abstract. And this is before we start looking at natural sciences, so biology, and then biology has its sub branches, chemistry. Oh my God, where do we begin? You know. Science, and, and the problem with this is that when you specialise in one branch, the idea that your branch needs to connect to everybody else's to give us a proper picture of the world never even crosses your mind. Well, Spensky says that even yeah. the little bridges between these separate literatures are built very badly and unsuccessfully, while they are often altogether absent. Yeah, and more often now. And by the way, it's got worse since his time, not better. Absolutely yeah. worse. And uh, there he says, and this formation of special literatures is the mm. chief evil and the chief obstacle to a correct understanding of things. Now, I've underlined that in my book because it is a fundamental, undeniable truth. Absolutely mm. fundamental and undeniable. Now, we can go a little bit away from science, but include science. So if we took something like geology as a science and we took archaeology, it's not really a science as such, not a pure science, but let's use those two together. There is a fantastic documentary about Egypt that discusses that the accepted, let's call it scientific idea of the age of the Sphinx is a few thousand years. And yet the idea is that you look at the striations on the base of the Sphinx and it must be a lot older than that. And so in this program, they got a geologist and the geologist comes around and looks at the striations and, say, and they ask him what age that thing must be. And I think he says something like 15,000 years. I'm pretty sure it's, it's about that. And the... The Egyptologists are saying it can't be. 
it can only be if and he turns around and says i don't know what your job is but this is what i do for a living i'm looking at that rock and i'm here to tell you that water striation means that 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 base is at least fifteen thousand years old and then turns his back and walks away he ain't even gonna have the debate because that's his specialization but you'll notice that the the archaeologists are not prepared to budge one inch even when they're faced with somebody who knows more about rocks than they could ever learn in a million years let alone fifteen thousand. yeah let alone fifteen thousand. so there is a great example of the bridges being entirely absent it's worse now than it ever has been yeah we, we, we've got no hope of of seeing the full picture we can't how can you I mean, the idea that people like Faraday, who could look into multiple aspects of science, and going back, even Isaac Newton, you know, people think of him as the mathematician, and he, they say he invented calculus, which is very disputable, but certainly he was in, instrumental in the development of it. Um, but he was also a great researcher into optics and light. That just doesn't happen and can't happen now. They will not allow anybody to be a, a scientific polymath in that way. And and if somebody does choose to do a degree in chemistry and a degree in biology, there's no way that you'll be allowed to do research papers that marry the two together in such a way that disputes the findings of either. Well, Spensky said 100 years ago this was the case and uh, it hasn't yep. changed. It hasn't changed And he's at also all. saying that, that what... One of the, the tricks of the trade is to get your own language, get your own lingo, and put all your literature in your jargon. Yeah, so your terminology as he at, uses it. Yeah. Anyone looking at book A and trying to figure out, are you saying the same as book B? Because no. you're using different words. Yeah. No bridge. Nothing. That's right. So the chemist doesn't uh, use the same language as the cosmologist, they use the same terminology and so on. It's, it's brilliant. So you, you literally do create your own secret language. No, and Uspensky being a mathematician, let's come back to that. We haven't mentioned that he's a mathematician for quite some time, and he, and he was you know, a really good mathematician. And nowhere is it more apparent what he's talking about than in the fields of cosmology, mathematics, and um, this new field of relativist, relativity um, and, the, and what that did for mathematics and physics. So the language there is so obscure that you cannot go from that to anywhere else and nothing else can intrude upon it. Yeah, it's siloed. So if, so if the, the mathematics that's used in cosmology tells you that um, redshift means that the, the redder the shift, the faster and further away an object is, if that's contradicted by observation, actual physical observation... You've got no way of the cosmologist fitting it into the language that they use because their mathematics says that's the only possible conclusion. But you're seeing it with your own fucking eyes that that's not the case, which, by the way, is the truth, which also means that the Big Bang posited on redshift, which it is, the Big Bang could not have happened. Certainly not the way they're claiming so they, if there was yeah, a big I don't bang, think you're going to get your paper written for the, the scientific fair, are you? No, <laughs> no, but it, 
but 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 by the way, this is not me. This is um, Nobel Prize winning um, cosmologists and scientists that are saying this. People that work into um, electric universe theory. People like um, Christian Berkeland and so on. Nikola Tesla, and so on. And so what we're doing is saying that these incredible, incredible, and Alpen Arp, Arp, who, who's, by the way, this is what happened to Arp. Arp is responsible for shouting the truth about Redshift, which, by the way, Hubble, who discovered Redshift, agreed with Arp. And before he died, he said, they're using my discovery for something that you can't actually prove. It's ridiculous. Um, you know, I'm going to go down in history as he invented a lie. Um, but Arp lost all of his astronomy privileges at Mount Palomar. They said, you're not going to be able to book any telescope time. And he ended up uh, being taken by the Planck Institute in Germany. That's what happens in science. They will brook no fucking bridges. They will not have a bridge. They will not have their established um, truth, which is not the truth at all, but they will not have that questioned or messed with. So tell me how science progresses us. It doesn't, does it? It can't. No, it's it now doesn't. reached the point where you cannot actually introduce any new thought at all. Full stop. And Uspensky was aware, but he was aware of that then, and this is what yeah, he's saying. Yeah, he was. Oh, yeah, and that's what he's saying. But he then, uh, uh, this next bit just blew me away. He says, what we needed for a long time is synthesis. That's one sentence, italicised, one paragraph. So, okay, he's establishing that's what we need. And then he goes on to say how this word synthesis was emblazoned on the banner of the contemporary theosophical movement started by H.P. Blavatsky. Now, he's already started using words here that, uh, that you know, something's coming. He's got the cricket bat in hand. And, uh, and then he says... Um, he don't, that's not in my version. Oh, my goodness. Well, wait till you hear the rest. Okay. But this word remained a word only because, in reality, a new specialisation was created and a theosophical literature of its own, separating and striving even more to separate and fence itself off from the general movement of thought. So it's like, <laughs> we need synthesis, but it's got to be our synthesis. Yeah, and that's what happened. Um, I've got here, and I don't know whether this, this is in your version, following where that would be, it says, there are movements of thought which strive not in words, but in action to fight this specialisation. I've got that, yes. Books are appearing, which it is impossible to refer to any accepted library classification, which it is impossible to enrol in any faculty. Have you got that? Yeah, yeah I have. These books are the forerunners of a new literature, which will break down all fences built in the region of thought and will clearly show to those who desire to know where they're going and where they can go. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that he's talking about the outpourings of the Western mystery tradition, magical orders, and Blavatsky's Theosophical Society itself. Yeah, I think that's what he's talking about. Because they are synthetic. So even though he's had a go at Blavatsky... I don't think... Hang on. 
I don't think he meant to have a go, and I think that's why he's taking he's taken that out of the revised edition because because it was it was open to misinterpretation. So I think that's why he's removed it. Either either that or somebody threatened him. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, the boys came round. Well, see, yeah. that's the thing. I thought I thought Blavatsky was one of his heroes, she, and she, I'm, I'm looking. She at was. She was. <laughs> I know. And I'm looking at this going, geez, everyone gets a turn this this chapter. <laughs> it's not just not just reserved for Buck. <laughs> well, like I say, in, in my in my revised edition, he has removed that reference because I'm pretty sure it's because he didn't mean it to be interpreted the way that quite obviously it is going to be interpreted. Uh, and, yeah. and so he's rather than try to mess with it, he's taken it out. But then yeah, what he's okay. left us with is, is that really cryptic, cryptic passage. Because what you want to say is, all right, then you are salt. Give us the name of some of these books. <laughs> you yeah. know, you prick. Well, he does. He does Don't go you, on. I know, I know, I know he does. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I mean by how, he te- how in this chapter he teases us. <laughs> like, he's like a tease. This. He Spensky, you tease. He is. <laughs> So and I like the fact that he he says too that they, they don't strive in words but in action. So to fight this specialization. So so they they're not out there trying to push back. They're just ignoring it. That's just yeah. But I think this this idea of action is why I'm pretty certain that he's referring to magical orders because they weren't literary orders. They did write down and publish, usually in private publication, quite a bit. You know you. You struggle to find, um, for example, original copies of something like the Equinox now, uh, a, a private publication of Alistair Crowley. Um, the Blue Book of the Equinox is particularly sought after. You can get them in PDF files. You, know, you can you can download. You you have to search for them, but they are findable. I've got them. Um, but these books were being written. But these people practiced. You know. Magic wasn't an abstract for them. They did it. They did the, they, they, they pieced the ceremonies together. They worked on alchemy. They did do these steps between the worlds. I find it a particularly dangerous way to go, having experienced it briefly. I don't find it to be organic. But this is what Uspensky's talking about here, and it, it entirely fits with the time that he's working in and what we do know of his interest in Blavatsky, but I really like the fact that Ispensky worked with Gurdjieff as well. Now, Gurdjieff had travelled into the the depths of places that people haven't really wanted to go to since the days of Marco Polo and the Silk Road. But, um, you know, he'd had this thing, you know, he'd had these this, these meetings with remarkable men, as, as it's put. There's even a movie called that, starring Warren Mitchell, who plays Gurdjieff in this. You'd be you'll be struggling to find that movie anywhere. It certainly ain't on Netflix, but you know. But Uspensky connected with Gurdjieff and spent a lot of time working with Gurdjieff and learning what Gurdjieff had learned that that wasn't available anywhere else. But while he was writing this, he most certainly his connection was with the Theosophical Society and its works, and certainly. He would have had connections with the ceremonial magical orders that were springing up in Britain, most notably the Order of the Golden Dawn, with S.L. McGregor Mathers and Alistair Crowley and, you know, W.B. Yeats, A.E. Waite, who 
commissioned the, the the best and most usable tarot card pack that we have available today, the Rider Waite Tarot, which is illustrated by Pamela Coleman Smith. He was well aware of all of those people and, and and that literature, and I think that's where he's what he's referring to here. But yeah, it's interesting that he he put that awkward passage in and then removed it. Yes. He's probably probably lost brownie points with uh, Helena yeah. on that one. And, and who else is writing for them? Mabel Collins and people like that. It's like, you know, they all slap him in the face. With yeah, a yes, yes. Pistols at dawn. That'll be the one. <laughs> so he does move on and, and some of these books, he, he talks, two in particular, um, he talks about the writings of Edward Carpenter and then of the Canadian psychiatrist, Dr. R. M. Buck. Um, I, I, yeah, he does. And we're going to en- enjoy Dr. R. M. Buck. But I just want to bring you back here. You know, he, I told you he's talking about all of these books that are making a difference, blah, blah, blah. I don't know what it says in your version before we come to Dr. Buck. But in mine, it says, I shall not now mention the names of these authors or the titles of these books but will dwell only upon the writings of Edward Carpenter and Dr. R. M. Brooke. So he isn't going to tell us the names of these books, the son of a bitch. Yeah, and why not? Why would he not? Why? Because he's, he's been very free to recommend books all the way through. You know, if you want to read this, you know, yeah, if you, have a look at that. If you haven't got a life, you can read Hinton. <laughs> but he could have put a little footnote to say, uh, go and have a look at these books. I should mention that there is no bibliography at the back of this book. <laughs> there is none. But potentially what you were saying is these were private publications he's referring yeah. to. Yeah, they and are. And they're not available. So what's so, the point? So don't don't tell us that they you know, these authors are sort of fighting this specialization. If they're private publications, they're not. Well, like I say, there are there are things like the Equinox, um, which was a privately published periodical when i say periodical you're thinking of a magazine that you can pick up in your local you know convenience store not so these were beautifully bound volumes and they're they're, they're, they're huge oh. big yeah oh they're they're incredible yeah but uh you know a periodical it means that it, it came out once every year or every six months or whatever there yeah. are only a few vo- there are only a few volumes of it but all the other books are like that you know the the Kabbalah by McGregor Mathers and so on. You know, they they were they, they, all of them are available now, but they weren't readily available at the time. And you can understand why. Can you imagine how you would have been shunned in society? You would. You you remember it was still despicably Christian and not mystically Christian. And so for you to be involved in magic would make you a monster, a heretic. True. So yeah, so it's interesting too. If you say Crowley was in the same era as, as uh, Spensky, he never quotes him as as well. It's like you know. Well, um, Crowley was absolutely, and Crowley was like, he was like the Lord Byron of that crowd. Mad, bad, dangerous to know. Crowley was um, go back to an earlier era. He was the Alcibiades. The Athenian Alcibiades, he was this devil prince, the one who would actually poke at your beliefs, rather like we're doing with Spensky sometimes here. He is the one that says, uh, "You, why should we just believe that? You've got to experience this, that and the other. And so then he has to be demonized. So they demonize him, but he wasn't a demon at all. No, he was a very good alchemist. He certainly was. 
Anyway, well, we're stuck with Edward Carpenter and R.M. Buck. Here we go. We don't um, even get much of Carpenter. We get a lot we, of I was Buck. going to say, we, <laughs> we get very little of Carpenter. Basically, we get a bit of a definition of what, what the higher consciousness is called, and it's called cosmic consciousness because it is uh, having an understanding of the, cos, you know, the cosmos of everything. Um, yeah, well, Edward Carpenter names that. That's, that's right. And Buck takes it. I do like, I, I do like um, how he, he quotes Carpenter saying, and Carpenter's very direct in saying that the existing consciousness by which contemporary man lives is merely the transitory form of another higher consciousness. In other words, Carpenter is saying that however smart you think you are now, we're, we're literally on a journey to somewhere higher, all of us. Consciousness is evolving. It's not static. That's what Carpenter's saying. Yeah, yeah. The couple of paragraphs that have been quoted by Spensky, I thought had some good stuff in it too, so we should go yeah. that too. Yeah, go for it. Um, Carpenter travelled in the Orient. Yeah, a little bit of background because Carpenter wasn't just a stay-at-home, sit-there-and-think-about-things uh, kind of person. He did go out and, and experience. Yeah, he was, he, you know, he did what Gurdjieff did. He went out there yeah. and looked for it. Yeah, and talk to people that had mm. potentially found it, yogis, ascetics. Um, and I like his book name. I don't, I don't know why he's called it this, From Adam's Peak to Elephanta. What <laughs> does that mean? Well, I don't know because Ed, Edward Carpenter isn't somebody that I'm massively familiar with at all. So I have absolutely no idea. All right, well, getting to the couple of paragraphs you've got, he talks about thought, individual thought, being the the state of consciousness that that we've achieved that's our our level of consciousness is can be encapsulated in the form of thought um, but if you want to get to cosmic consciousness you have to have an understanding or a knowing of one's oneself being separate from the body yeah. he goes on to yeah he goes on to talk about this the same sort of stuff that uh, we've already been talking about in the last chapter about this ecstasy, this incredible joy. Can I can I, can I come in and, and just say Please something? Do. Just a little bit here. The actual point of these um, three paragraphs, in my version, there's three paragraphs that he's quoted from Carpenter's Adam's Peak book. It's right there in, at the beginning. The point of this is that we here are striving for individual you know, raising of consciousness and development of consciousness. In the East, they don't. They talk about the universal consciousness. In other words, there is much more of an understanding. They start from a position where, what Spensky has said all the way through this book, there is only one thing. We are all one continuum, universal continuum. We still here start from that false point of separation. I'm going to raise my consciousness instead yes. of instead of what I what I falsely perceive to be an individuated consciousness. I'm now going to find my connection with the whole is the Eastern way of doing it. So th th that's the point of Carpenter's here is the idea. It's that differentiation between the East and the West. And the way we go about it and why for us, it seems like such striving, such hard work. Whereas in the East, it's natural, organic, and flows. Is he then saying that the 
this individual consciousness is being, you know, I'm going to evolve myself as a silo. He says it takes the form of thought, which is fluid and mobile like quicksilver, um, potentially in a state of change and unrest. So he's kind of saying that, that as opposed to this other form of consciousness that is no motion, without change, without effort, without distinction in subject of subject and object, he's kind of referring to what we've heard in the other chapters about, you know, that limpid, enormous diamond. Yeah, but also we, also we go back to the idea that you can't have change without time, and he's already demonstrated that time is fake, and it's only a... A, 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 a false illusion that allows us to have the positivistic experience of the third dimension. So mm. once you go beyond that, then there can be no change. I just thought it was um, it was an interesting concept that, that flows in with what Spensky said before that that the universe is unchanging and unmoving mm. until you because pretend. all all things, whether past, present, or future, from our point of view. Exists simultaneously. So once you make that connection with the universal consciousness, you experience everything because everything is there at the same time. So it's not fluid, it's not changing, it's not moving. What we perceive as change is something that goes from the past to the present to the future, but they exist simultaneously in truth. So it's not moving. So, all right, so he says all the subsequent writings of Carpenter, and especially his book of free verse towards democracy, deal with the uh, psychology of ecstatic experiences and portray the path whereby man goes towards this principal aim of his existence. So, The principal aim of his existence, he does further say, is new consciousness. I haven't got that. That's why I, I knew he hadn't. That's why I just said it, because... Obviously, people had wrote to me, so, well, what is this bloody principal aim then, is Spencer, you dupe? You can't just say that and not tell us what it is. And so he's put it in, in my version. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that you would have read it if it had been in yours. <laughs> it's, it just, it, because it follows on so obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so he's calling it a new consciousness. He's not, yeah. he's not giving it a level of higher or lower. He's just saying no. new. Is, and isn't that fantastic, actually, because it takes away all of the ambition and the striving. Yeah, it's, there's, it, yeah, it's, it's a destination, not a goal. Mm. Um, yeah. But, uh, and then he says, only the attainment of this principal aim will illumine for man the past and the future. It will be a seership and awakening. Without this, with only earthly individual consciousness, Man is blind and cannot hope to know anything that he cannot feel with his stick. That's going back to his analogy from very early on in the book, which is mm. it's a good analogy, you know. It's like it we, is. It we is. are like we are in this world, we're living like a blind person, and we what we know of the world only amounts to as far as we can reach with the stick, with yeah. our white stick. We we know of nothing else further distant from us than the radius that we can reach with that stick. And science is telling us where that stick is. Yep. Actually, science makes the stick shorter. Yes. Yes. Well, that's it with Carpenter now. I think that we can do Buck next week, and then the following week we finish the chapter by going into what we've teased our audience with, Spensky launching the cricket bat at the bollocks of Dr. Buck. 
Yes. So, so if we leave it here with the anticipation of the cricket bat to the bollocks of Dr. Buck, then I think... I think uh, it's it's a good place to to leave it here. And uh... yeah, I mean to be fair, we will we will only be going through Doctor Buck. We will be putting the cricket back to him next week. But but you know, I mean, obviously, um, the the subsequent and the the one that wraps everything up is where we let Espensky loose with his cricket bat and his hobnail boots, and he's going to leave Doctor Buck as a blooded, bruised mess with broken bones lying in the gutter of his own trash. Yes, as only Espensky can do. So, yes. uh, well, well, thanks, Pete, for another um, rollicking good conversation. I've really it's enjoyed it. I love this chapter. I, have, I, I do as well. I mean, he, he did save the best till the last, and there's been some good stuff before, but my God, <laughs> I love this chapter a lot too. Good old Aspensky. I look forward to next week, and uh, we will leave it there. So thanks again, and thanks, everyone, for listening.